Well, good morning again. Morning. You guys have a good week? Yeah. Yeah. I had a good week. All right, let me give you a couple announcements before we jump into the Word. So, uh, a couple things. One, first weekend of September is Promotion Sunday for our kids in Children's Church. So, right now we have 18 months up to 5 years old. At five years old, they move over to the middle class with Miss Debbie. So if you have anybody who is at that age, they'll be moving over to Miss Debbie's class. Anyone who is uh, over five will be moving over into the third class, which is with Miss Nicole. And then anybody over nine, or I'm sorry, over eight, so if they're nine years old, they'll be coming to church with us. So just check those date or those age ranges back there. But if you have a kid on one of those age breaks, they're going to be moving up that first weekend of September as school starts. Uh, so start having that conversation with them. The teachers will start having that conversation with them. And then what I really want us to be excited about is on that first weekend in September when some of those older nine-year-olds come in here with us. Let's make them feel welcome. Let's get them excited about being in big church. Let's show them that we have a good time out here as well. All right, so keep those things in mind. Um, other big thing that's happening is next weekend is child dedication. We have uh, one little kiddo that we're going to be dedicating. If you're not familiar with child dedication, what it is is it's the parents or grandparents standing before the church saying, I realize this child is a wonderful gift of God's. And what I'm going to ask is that the church family prays for us, and I'm going to ask that God guides us as we raise this child so that we raise them in a biblical manner. All right, so that's what child dedication is to us. It's a commitment to one, try to lead them biblically as a parent or grandparent. And then second, the request that, hey, church family, please pray for my kids and my, my growth and that we are on the right path as we move forward. If you are interested in being part of that, please seek me out. Love to have a conversation with you first uh, before we do that. So if there's any children that haven't been dedicated and you want to do that, please just seek me out. We can talk more about those details. All right. And then last thing, uh, you guys are going to be without me for two weeks. So the last uh, Sunday of August, uh, Brother Joe is going to preach uh, for me. And then the first weekend of September, I'm going to have Brother Raymond come and preach while we take some time to do a little family trip. So um, I will miss you guys. But I'm excited to have those two come. Brother Raymond has been working on this one particular sermon for probably about three months. So you guys should be ready because when he, when he comes to preach it, he's going to preach it. He's, he was really, really excited about the opportunity to come and preach. So uh, got all those dates? We good? All right, let's jump in. So Ephesians. Feels like we've been here all of 2017. In the book of Ephesians, what we've been talking about is as Christians, God has come into our life and he has given us a new life. And with that new life, there's a way that he wants us to live. And so the first four chapters are really about what God has done for you, how he's dynamically changed who you are and how you live. And then the, the second half of the book has been about now that you are different, it should look different. So your marriages should be different. The way you work should be different. The way you raise your kids should be different. Everything about the way you live should scream to people that God Almighty lives inside of you. And if those things don't show, then something's wrong. If God Almighty, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-amazing, all-righteous, all-awesome, lives in you, there should be no way for you to hide that in your actions and behaviors. And so at the end of the book, we get to chapter 6, and Paul goes, and one more thing. Don't forget that this Christian journey is a war. This isn't a track meet where the gun goes off and you just run as fast as you can to the finish line and no one's going to try to stop you. This is a war and the minute it starts, you have a powerful, forceful enemy who is going to use everything at his disposal to try to stop you. 
You are going to be attacked. You are going to get hit. You are going to feel pain. Don't be shocked by that. He wants us to know that we're in war. Now, He promises us two things. One, God has guaranteed victory. So that doesn't mean the war will be easy, but we know how it ends. Second, God has equipped us so that we can fight this battle in a way no one else has been able to fight it before. And so while he's telling us that we're at war, he's giving us, one, the hope that we know we'll be victorious, and two, the knowledge of the equipment that we need to use to stand our ground and not get moved. But the big thing he wants is, hey, wake up. You're at war. Don't be surprised when life comes and hits you in the face. Don't be surprised when pain and hurt come your way. Because a lot of us as Christians, the opportunity for us to show the light that's inside of us, the best time is when it's darkest around us. But in those dark times, if we, just like everybody else, are full of panic and fear and despair and grief and confusion, well, the people don't see the light and they don't understand the difference that we have in our lives. And so as we've been going through Ephesians chapter 6, we've been talking about there's one key to this entire series. When you look at Ephesians and everything that it's about, the whole entire point is there is a standard that God has. And that standard is not kind of hard. It's impossible. It's impossible if you try to do it by yourself. The picture that God wants us to have is the only way we meet these ideals is not by living in our own power, but by living in His. And so we keep coming back to this verse, John 15, 5. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I've continually talked to you about this really is the difference between a true Christian disciple and somebody who just agrees with Christian beliefs. Those who believe in Christian beliefs, what they do is they go, I want my will, God make it happen. God, I'm going to live my life and my plan, and I'll come to you as my backup and insurance. When I run out of my own strength, power, and wisdom, then I'll call on you. When I mess it up so bad I can't fix it, then I'll call on you. When I have got to the end of my rope, then I'll call on you. What this verse points to is, guys, you can do nothing of your own. How a true Christian disciple lives is they start the day and they go, Father, show me your will. Father, first and foremost, I come to you. And I ask you for your strength, your power, your love, and for you to show me the path. You are the Lord. I am the servant. That means you give the orders, I carry them out. And so that's the mentality that we've got to have is that God's not your backup plan. He's not there to bail you out. He's your first, your foremost, your everything. And how you accomplish things is you live in Him. You're not close to Him. You're one with Him. You live with Him. Now, as we've been going through Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20, this closing passage, Paul has been outlining for us different pieces of armor that God has given us. And if you're wondering why armor, it goes a couple things. One, it fits completely with his analogy of at war. If you're at war, how do you show you're prepared? You're armored up. The second thing is, remember, Paul is writing this to us, probably chained to a Roman soldier. He's in prison at this time. He's surrounded by Roman guards, and he's seeing how these soldiers every day are prepared for battle, even though most days they will never be out on the front lines. But every day they're prepared. 
And so he's been breaking down piece by piece spiritually this armor that you and I are supposed to have. Now there's a couple things I want to look at. So first, let's recap. One, the first piece is the belt of truth. And the belt of truth is really about an attitude of commitment. And when you have that belt on, what you're saying is, I am committed to the walk with God. All excess worldly baggage has been cast off. I'm in my athletic clothing and I'm ready to run. I'm ready to move. I'm acknowledging that I'm at war. The second piece about that belt is across your chest, it would show all the insignias of the campaigns and battles you had previously been victorious in. Why? To give you courage for the next one. God got you through this, he 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 got you through this. If he can do that, he'll get you through this next one. And so that belt of truth was a statement of my commitment to walk with God and to be ready for this war. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. And what the breastplate of righteousness calls out is it says, I am holy. Remember I said the breastplate really is for your enemy. It screams out to your enemy that when you look at me, you don't see me. You don't see a weak sinner. You see the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's much like a jersey for football players. Why do they all come out looking sharp? Because what they want you to see is not individuals, but they want to see a team. A team that you go, I'm worried about that team. That team has done mighty things. That team has accomplished a lot. That team is a very good force. Same thing for us. We want to stand with that breastplate of righteousness, not ours, but Jesus' righteousness, that screams to Satan, you come after me, you come after him. You want to fight me? You will face him, and you'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Lord. And so we show, one, I'm committed. Two, I am holy in my Lord. The third thing we talked about last week was the shoes of gospel peace. And so what we talked about is, well, the breastplate screams to the world and to your enemy, I belong to Jesus. What the shoes say is, I am confident in that. I personally am confident in that. I personally know that I am his child. I personally know that I have been saved. I personally know that he's not going to leave me. And so my feet are dug in, and when you come at me, I'm not moving. This is being built on the house of rock, not being built on sand. So I am committed, I am holy, and I am confident. Now today, I'm actually going to pair two different pieces of the armor together, and I'll explain to you why. If we look at this, Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 15, let's break it down the new pieces we're talking about today. It says, Stand for and therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So those are the three we've already talked about. Now, as we move to the next verse, look at how it starts. It says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So come in, let me call it a couple things here. One, you'll notice in all circumstances that is used by Paul to call out that there is a difference between the armor that has already been talked about and these new pieces that he is now showing. Okay, so we had the breastplate, the belt, and the shoes. And remember when he said put on your armor, the verb he uses for put on is a one-time permanent action. Meaning, I put my armor on and every day I wear it. It never comes off, it never leaves, every single day I'm ready. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, where a lot of Christians mess up is they take their armor on and they take it off. 
They put it on and they put it off. The reason that's a problem is you stink at knowing when war's coming. So you like to be like, well, you know, it's a weekend. Uh, surely it's not going to be a spiritual war this weekend. I'm going to go casual sa Saturday and just chill out. And Satan's going, great, they don't have their armor on today. Time to attack. Christ's point is, you put this on and you have it on every single day. Always. Always. Bare minimum. Now, in all circumstances, this now calls out, when you really look at the Greek, is there's a difference between long-term versus immediate-term needs. So the belt of truth, the attitude of commitment, the righteousness of Christ, and our gospel, which gives us confidence and peace, those are things that should always be ready and prepared. That in all circumstances calls out that now these other three things, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and the shield of faith, these are more immediate things that you use in the midst of attack. Alright, so my armor is always on, but when I really see, okay, he's here today. Now he's throwing punches. Now he's shooting fiery arrows at me. That's when you pick up that shield, you grab that sword, and you're ready to go. And so there's both long-term preparation, and there is also short-term execution of battle. And that's an important thing for you and I to understand. It's both us preparing long-term and short-term to handle these things. Where a lot of us lose is, is that we never do long-term preparation. It's only once the war is fully on and we're being attacked from all sides that we're like, okay, wait a minute, I need, I need to bone up on my scripture here. I really need to be prayed for. My goodness, I'm getting my butt kicked right now. Please, someone help me. And the reason that's happening is you haven't been preparing. It's like I learned this a long time ago studying athletes. Most great athletes, do you know when they do most of their work? In the off-season. Most great athletes actually work harder in the off-season than they do in-season. Why? Because here's what they know. In-season, everybody's working. In-season, there's a game. Everybody on the field's playing hard. What they know in the off-season is that's what separates the men from the boys. In the off-season, some guys are on the beach, some guys are gaining weight, some guys are chilling and relaxing, and other guys are going, I'm getting ready. And it's those the ones that when the battle starts, they go, I've been preparing for this. I have been preparing for this moment, and I am ready to take this on. It's the others that sometimes go like, oh, dang it. Okay, season's on. Time to get ready. Let's not be those people. Have long-term preparation and then skill in the short term when the battle is hot and flaming. All right? So let's break these down. The shield and the sword. The other great thing about the shield and the sword is there's a little bit of skill to how you use them. The other things are more about an identity that you have that is permanent. The shield and the sword really are about skill. So not only do I know I have these instruments, but I'm used to using them and working with them. Now the shield, I want to give you a picture of it. The shield was actually a pretty cool instrument. The shield being described here was a shield that would probably have been about four and a half feet long. And so the point of this shield was, is this wasn't like a small Captain America shield you use in sparring. This was a long one that you'd put in front of you. So that from far away as the enemy would shoot arrows at you, you could basically cover your entire body with it. It would normally be made of hard wood and then covered with a piece of metal and then also a piece of leather that was often treated with chemicals so that when a flame hit it, it would extinguish it. Because often what was happening during battle is flaming arrows were being shot from distance to see if they could pick you off. 
Now the beauty of the shield is not only did it provide individual protection, but look at what it looks like when the whole team gets together. When the whole team gets together and the army stands as a family, as one unit, my goodness, good luck getting an arrow through there. It's almost an impenetrable force. And so the shield gave you the ability to take those long-term attacks that were starting to come at you. Now the shield, what does God say it is? He says it's the shield of what? It's the shield of faith. So let's talk about faith. 1 John 5.4 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith is a huge component to us being victorious. It's a huge part of it. And to be honest, as a Christian, the thing that you will learn more and more as you get deeper in your relationship with God is just how important faith is. There are not answers to every question. God rarely will show up at your feet and give you the game plan with every step to comprehensively tell you of everything that's going to happen. Often what God will do is He will come to you and He will give you just enough evidence that you know, one, what He wants of you, and two, that you can trust Him. And it is with those two things that you then, with faith, have to move out and actually do what God is asking you to do. If you're waiting for the moment where God's going to come down and sit down with you for 30 minutes and go, let's walk through the next year. Let me tell you about the next 10 things that are going to happen and how I want you to handle them. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Even as you read through Scripture and you see the stories of men encountering God face to face, it didn't happen. God gives you enough to know He's there and what He wants, and the rest He asks you to trust Him. You know what I always loved about that? It kind of reminded me as a kid when it was time to go somewhere. Dad would say, let's go for a ride. Let's get in the car. I didn't get the whole agenda of what we were doing for the day. I didn't get the reasoning of why we were going to go to the places that we were going to go. What I got was, Dad, who loves me, has asked me to do something and given me enough instructions that I know what to do. Going to do it. I'm going to go get ready, and I'm going to jump in the car, and I'm going to trust that we go somewhere good. That's the same kind of relationship we're to have with God. So I often laugh about people who have these detailed five-year plans. Have you ever met those folks? Like they can lay out life for you? It doesn't work real well. It doesn't work real well because God has his own agenda, his own plan, his own thing that he's trying to accomplish. And what he wants to see from you is that you will faithfully pursue that. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.5. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And brothers and sisters, this is really where it gets down to it. God is going to present knowledge and truth to you, and so is the world. Now granted, the world is not going to give you real truth. It's not going to give you real knowledge, but it's going to present its own case. And what you as an individual have to choose in this battle is which way do you go? Do you trust your Father and Creator? Do you trust the one who died on a cross for you? Do you trust the one that is with you day in and day out? Or do you listen to the wisdom of this world and pursue it? That's the real choice you'll have. What's funny about faith is that I've met many a person who's either an atheist or agnostic that will tell you, oh, well, I just can't handle faith. You know, I believe in facts. I believe in hard, cold facts. Do you know what's hilarious about that? There's no facts that prove anything. Ask any brilliant scientist in the history of mankind to explain how life comes to be. They can't. 
They can't explain how life happens. You can give any scientist, any set of chemicals, any combination of any material in the history of mankind, and there's not a single one of them that can take something that's dead and bring it back. They don't know that. You can look at any scientist and ask them to explain how the universe began, and the most comprehensive answer you'll get is at some point, all the matter in the world was at one singular point, and in a burst of light, started to move out, and that's how we think the world began. That's all they can tell you. Which, by the way, sounds a lot like what? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning there was God, and God said, let there be light. So what's funny is you'll sit with some of these people and be like, I'm a scientific person. I only believe in facts. They go, okay, well, so how do you believe in life? Because no one can prove it, how it works. Well, you know, I mean, I have, you know, I, I think there's ways to see past those gaps. Oh, well, tell me about the universe. How did it come to be? Well, we don't know all the details. I mean, we think it had something to do with gravity and matter and, and different things out there. And you're like, your faith obviously is present. It's just not in God. It's in science. You're continually believing in things that don't have a hard and fast case of how it works. One of the best examples ever is evolution. Charles Darwin himself who wrote the theory of evolution, said that if in the next 40, 50 years, the fossil record didn't show species changing from one to another, that he himself couldn't believe in evolution. Nowadays, anybody who realistically looks at evolution will go, there are a ton of gaps. A ton. But you sell people who sit there and go, nope, that's what happened. Why? Faith. They have faith in that theory. You and I have faith in God Almighty. And so what's interesting is for me is I've never really believed in blind faith. Me in my whole life I've always looked at all the evidence and said which one makes the most sense. And what I have always found in my life is that if I truly intellectually go after any topic in this world, whatever the world has to say versus what God has to say, He always has more knowledge, more wisdom, and more logic behind what He says than anything the world can. And so there's these people that think sometimes faith requires intellectual suicide. I actually think it's the opposite. I think it's people who have to shut their brains off to not look at this world and think that there is a God that exists. And so I encourage you as people of faith not to just blindly jump into stuff, but to go to God's Word, listen to what your Father says, and realize He gives you enough to confidently leap off knowing He's there to catch you. It's never blind. Now look at Genesis chapter 3 with me. In Genesis chapter 3, we are shown where this battle often takes place and where faith comes into works. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of man. And what's interesting about the fall of man is that when you look at Adam and Eve, they had every single reason to trust God. God made them. God fed them. God provided for them, and in fact, God provided for them so beautifully, they knew no pain, no hunger, no hurt, no sadness. They knew nothing evil, dark, or bad. They lived in perfect paradise. But God gave them something. He gave them free will, which meant they could choose to follow Him or not follow Him. And so in Genesis chapter 3, what we see happen is, is we see how Satan attacks. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we know how this plays out from here. She looks at the fruit, she grabs the fruit, she tastes the fruit, and she gives the fruit to her husband. What's always sad to me about the story is, why did she even listen to the serpent? Here is God her Father, who she walks with daily in physical form with. The one who shaped her and made her, who has given her a perfect companion, who has given her everything she's ever needed. And all he's ever asked is just, please leave this one piece of fruit alone. All of a sudden, this serpent, who she doesn't know from anybody, shows up and goes, God's a liar. God's a liar. In fact, look at it. Doesn't it look good? Doesn't it look tasty? You know why God really doesn't want you to have it? Because you'll be more like Him. Why in that moment she took that over what God had done for her, I don't know. But you know what? Each and every one of us do it every day. Each and every one of us every day is faced with decisions like this where God has clearly articulated to us what He wants and He has shown us throughout history that He is there for us and that He loves us. But continually the world comes in and goes, Ah, ignore that. Look at this. Isn't this shiny and pretty? You want this. And where faith comes in is in those moments, are we going to listen to what God has told us and follow through, or are we going to fall back and actually put trust in what the world says? Because that's what you're doing. You're not just disobeying God, you're putting trust in what the world says. And that's where God wants His people to be different in faith. Look at Habakkuk 2.4. Any of you guys know there was a book named Habakkuk in the Bible? I hope so. I've had a few people before when I go Habakkuk, they're like, is that really in the Bible? Is he saying that right? I don't think he's saying that right. There's no book called Habakkuk in there. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Those words there, shall live by faith, are repeated dozens of times in Scripture. We shall live by faith. And where this faith comes from really is about pride. Are you and I humble enough that when we hear God speak and we hear God tell us which way to go, that we go, Father, I will listen to you. I will obey you. Or is there a pride in us that goes, eh, nice thoughts, God, but I think I have a better plan. You know, hey, thanks for your advice, but I'm going to do my own thing. It's funny how quickly that pride rises up in us. My little Jake, two years old, and already we're starting to see these moments where he's like, he knows what daddy wants, but he now has decided he has his own game plan. And he has these moments to decide of, am I going to do what dad wants? Or you know what? I like Jake's plan better. I'm going to do Jake's plan. That's you and me with our father God. We have to decide which way we're going. In Luke chapters 1 through 2, I'm not going to read through all this, but I think there's a beautiful example of how God works with faith. God comes to a young woman named Mary and he tells her that you're going to have a child, even though you're a virgin, and that child will be the Son of God. Now, brothers and sisters, just listening to that statement, can you imagine that there would be some intellectual problems for Mary in listening to that? One, it's scientifically impossible. Two, God doesn't really describe to her in any way, shape, or form how this is going to occur. He doesn't even necessarily give her all the depth of why it's going to occur. 
He also never addresses any of the facts of what socially this is going to do to her in a society that would completely ostracize her for this. But God shows up in the form of an angel and says, you're going to have my son. You shall name him Jesus. Now, what a lot of people miss is what happens after that. So Mary's been told this, and now she's already been given one sign because an angel actually appeared to her, which I imagine would shake most of us to realize something supernatural was happening. But then secondarily, after she finds out she's pregnant, what does she do? She goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, as she's coming to meet Mary, goes, Oh my goodness, the baby in your womb is special. I know that because my own child leapt in my womb. You carry the Savior. Okay, so she's heard this from an angel. Now as she goes to meet her cousin who knows nothing, she hears it from her. Then she has the child, and what happens? Shepherds arrive at her door and go, God Almighty came to us and said that your son was born today and that he will be the Savior and Messiah. We are here to worship him. Another sign. Another group of people showing up that she does not know, but saying what? Exactly the same message that her cousin said, which is exactly the same message that her, her God the Father said. Then, eight days after he's born, what happens? She takes him to the temple, and she runs into this man named Simeon, and he goes, I can surely die. God told me I would not die until I saw the Savior, and as I look upon your child, I know I've seen him. Later at the temple, another woman walks up, and she goes, I know that this is the Messiah. I know that in my heart. Later what happens? The three wise men show up and go, hey, we're here to see the Messiah. Do you kind of see how that works? Do you think Mary had a ton of unanswered questions about how she was carrying God's son? Do you think she had a ton of unanswered questions about exactly how everything was going to play out? Yes. But did God also give her a ton of evidence of what he was doing in her life? Did he also give her a ton of evidence and reassurance that he was there, that his plan was on track, and that he was guiding everything? Absolutely. That's how God the Father works with faith. Now, there's one other component to faith that we have to look at, and it's shown to us here in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The reason we have to pair, pair the shield of faith with the sword of the word is, is they come hand in hand together. Your faith is not just in blind philosophy. Your faith comes from you understanding the Word of God, believing in it, and living it. And I think it's very beautiful that Paul uses a sword to describe the Word of God. Because if you've ever seen someone who does sword fighting, it's not enough just to own a sword. In fact, if you own a sword but never use it, you're probably more detrimental to yourself than you are to anyone else. It is only someone who has a sword and practices with it, trains with it, knows how to handle it, knows how to use it, that actually becomes a threat to anyone other than himself. And so for many of you, the problem is not that you don't own a sword. We have swords laying around everywhere. There are swords in every pew in front of you. I have like 20 of them in my library back there. The problem is not having one, it's do you know how to use it. And for some of you, I bet I could go to your sword and I could write my name in the dust on its cover. For some of you, your Bible that's 10 years old probably looks brand new. It should not be the way it works. 
For our faith to be rich, we have to be hearing God's word and obeying and living in it. Look at what God says about the sword. He says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of man, of, of the heart. What's he saying? The power of the word is it cuts through the junk. You can put your facade on, you can put on your pretty outside, you can build your philosophy around, you can do everything to make you feel confident in what you're doing. And what the Word of God does is cuts right through that and gets to the heart of the matter. It pierces the soul. Have you ever noticed how much you lie to yourself? It's amazing how much we lie to ourselves. It's been funny as I've been getting healthier I'll sometimes see pictures of myself a few months ago and be like, did I really look like that? And what's funny is I didn't think I looked like that then. And you know why? Because in my head I was lying to myself every day. Every day I was just sitting there looking and when I look in the mirror, I really wasn't seeing the image in front of me. I was seeing my perception of the image in front of me. It was funny, about a couple weeks ago my parents were... Uh, looking through a Facebook page. It was their high school reunion. And um, my mom was like, these people are so old. She's like, why does everyone look so old? And my dad's like, because babe, we're old. <laughs> she's like, we don't look like that. She's like, look at them. They're all old people now. And he's like, we're old. And she's looking at me and she goes, do you think I look that old? And I'm like, I am not handling, no. No, you do not, mom. For some reason, those people in Indiana have aged way really rapidly compared to you. You look nothing like them at all. And the beauty of it was is it, it kind of shook her to that moment where like she'd been seeing herself in a way, and it wasn't until this outside context was presented that she went like, oh my gosh, we're old. We do this all the time. We lie to ourselves, and the beauty of the word is it goes, uh-uh. You can tell yourself you did that for right reasons. No, you did not. You can tell yourself you did it for this. No, you didn't. You did it for this reason. You can say you justified all this thing and that God really wants this. God doesn't want this. You want this. And you've convinced yourself that God's blessed it. The Word of God is a weapon that cuts through all those lies, all that darkness, all that deceit, and hits the heart. And the beauty of it is because of that, it's living. It's why there are moments you'll read a passage and go, oh my goodness, I've read this 25 times. But today I read it, and all of a sudden it convicts me. All of a sudden it speaks to me. All of a sudden it's presenting a pathway for me. And it never did that before. Why? Because God is using the word in that moment to call you somewhere. What else does he say about it? Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is your training manual. This is what's supposed to show you how to live. It's supposed to show you where you've gone wrong, and it's supposed to provide instruction to get you back on the right path. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be things in your life that you will face that have nothing to do with your own behavior. Some of us, just because of the sin in this world, will face pain and darkness that has nothing to do with our actions. However, that is not the majority of the things you face. 
The majority of the pain that we face is brought on directly by us. Many of us regularly, continually, and repeatedly are choosing to ignore God's wisdom, God's advice, and God's direction. I will see people who are actively living against God's word and be like, why isn't he taking this away from me? Why isn't he blessing this? Why isn't he making this better? Why? Because he wrote you a manual. He wrote you a love letter. He gave you advice on what to do. You look at it and go, no thank you, but hey, could you fix this for me? And God's sitting there going, you want to fix it? Do what I've asked you to do. Listen to the word that I've gotten into your hands. So many of us want God to magically fix everything without us answering it all to what he said to do. And so brothers and sisters, I deeply question people who go, oh yeah, I love God. And I go, have you read your Bible? No. Wait a minute. Let me understand this. You are passionately in love with God. He is the most important thing in the entire world to you. And he came to this world and he wrote you a love letter that explains to you what your purpose and your passion and what you should be pursuing are. And you haven't read it? You haven't read it. You've never picked it up. Please explain that to me. Can you imagine like for any of us that have lost somebody, like if you found that they had written you a letter that you'd never read? Can you imagine finding that letter and going, ah, I'll get to it later. Oh yeah, I know Grandpa Larry died, and I know he was one of my biggest heroes and fans, and he wrote a letter personally to me about life. I'll read it some other time. I got some Netflix shows to catch up on. Who would do that? And if you did that, I think everybody watching you would go, uh, they must not have had a good relationship. So Something doesn't make sense there. Someone you dearly loved sat down and wrote you something about your life and you could care less about it? And what's funny, people, is I've heard all kinds of excuses. Oh, I'm not that sharp. I'm not that intelligent. I don't know that much. Do you know what? That is all lies. Because on whatever you're passionate about, you're highly intelligent. I know men who can sit down and name every football team in every division, what their records are, who their starting lineup is, and how many fantasy points they scored the week prior. But when you ask him to talk about the Bible, it's like, I don't know, my memory's not so good. You can break down the fourth quarter of a Cowboys game from 1996, but you can't tell me what God's Word says. I don't think it has to do with your memory. I think it has to do with your passion. And so what we see about this is we see, one, this is something that should be used in our lives. It wasn't just a history book. It's something given to us for us to act a certain way. And then there's something even more profound about the word. Look at John 1.14. And John, he paints a beautiful picture for us to understand that the word is not just words, it is Jesus. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he's trying to get you to understand, this just isn't a book. This is part of him. This is Jesus. This is his knowledge, his love, his wisdom, his guidance. This is him. And he's given it to you. And you're ignoring it. Why? Why? It's sad, but I often have played this game. 
uh, I call Atheist Luke. And with Atheist Luke, what I do is, is when I teach a class, I will normally spend a few weeks teaching them a topic from Scripture, breaking down what it says, God's truth and wisdom in it. And then normally at some point what I'll do is I'll come in to the class and I'll start teaching, but completely against everything that the Bible says. So I'll start using all the arguments that our enemies would use to say that the scripture is wrong. And, and when I do this, I don't normally tell them I'm doing this. I want to see how long it takes them to realize I'm not speaking scripture. I want them to see how long does it take for you to realize he has gone off word, he is not speaking truth. Do you know what's shocking? Is a lot of times it takes a long time for people to realize that. I think a lot of you have put your trust in me being the sword bearer. I think a lot of you have said, here, Pastor Luke, here's, here's the sword of the word. Learn how to use it for us. Learn how to use it for us and you tell us what's important about it. No. I am here to help instruct you on how to get truth out of this, but you have to carry it. Because I'm not there with you to fight your battles. It's your responsibility, your duty, your obligation to use the word that the Father gave to you to be able to fight the wars that come your way. You need to know this word. You need to know its truth. And you need to be able to listen and discern are people speaking God's truth or are they not? And to be honest, a lot of us are completely ignorant with it. Some of us, I don't even know if we know where the handle is and where the pointy end is. We are not using Scripture with skill. 2 Timothy 2.15 This is my grandfather's favorite verse. He would always, always hit this into us and into my father of how important this was. To do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That is my weapon, and you should see me use it with skill. You should see when it's in my hands, I am used to having it. I know it in and out. It is my friend, it is my companion, it is my strength. And see, the beauty of the shield and sword together is as I read the Word, I learn more and more about what God wants and what He says. And then with faith, I go live those things out. See, without these things together, we run into a problem. If I have knowledge but no faith, then great. You've learned a bunch of facts. you learned a bunch of facts and they have changed your life zero. And you'll run into that. Do you know some of the greatest theological minds are in Ivy League schools? They can tell you anything and everything about the history of Scripture, how it was put together, different theories and philosophies, but a lot of them aren't even believers. They approach Scripture like they're studying math. Just a bunch of things for them to have learned. But every day they don't live a single ounce of it out at all. So there are some of you where your problem is, is not the sword of the word. You've read the word. You know the word. You can tell me all the Bible stories. The problem is, is what happens when you walk outside these doors. Is despite having all this knowledge, you live in a way that doesn't look for a second like you're different from the rest of the world. With others, what happens is they go, oh, I'm faithful. I've got faith. I'll obey God. The problem is, is you only understand two or three things that he's ever said. So while you may faithfully act in those things, there's a whole wealth 
of knowledge and guidance that he's providing that you're just ignorant to. And so yes, well, you would carry it out if you knew it. You've never taken the time to know it. And so we've got to make sure that these two things come hand in hand. I read his word, I meditate on his word, I cherish his word, and then I live it boldly in faith. Day in and day out. If those two don't come together, then the power of this life is gone. Know the Word, do the Word. Know the Word, do the Word. That has to be the focus of our lives. There's also one other thing I want to share with you when that happens. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah talks about encountering God's words. He says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. The reason some of you have yet to ever experience that sentiment when it comes to the Word is because you're not living it out. When the Word is just philosophy, it's just a set of rules, it's boring. But when you take that Word and you internalize it, you spiritually feed upon it, you then live it out, there's a joy that starts to fill your heart because you see it alive in you. You see it working. And the beauty of that moment is when you first experience that joy is it becomes contagious. The first time you feel that, you go, oh my gosh, that's an amazing feeling. And you get addicted. You're like, God, I want that more. I want to feel that every day. I want to feel that all the time. And so brothers and sisters, I encourage you as you look at your own journey, are you eating the Word? Are you living the Word? Are you joyous in the Word? You should be. There's one last passage I'm going to give to you guys as homework to take home with you. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus get tempted in the desert. And it's one of my favorite passages. Because in it, we realize that Satan, the force of evil, is standing toe-to-toe with Jesus, the force of light. This is Jesus. The very words he speaks are considered scripture. And as he stands toe-to-toe with Satan, we watch a battle ensue, and there's a couple key things about the battle to understand. One is, Satan knows the word too. And so as Satan tries to tempt Jesus, he doesn't tempt him with stupid stuff. You don't see him go, hey Jesus, let's go kill a bunch of people. Hey Jesus, let's go steal a bunch of stuff from people. Hey Jesus, let's go be super evil. It's not how Satan works most of the time. It's why you don't really ever pass satanic churches. Most people in the presence of pure evil go, no thank you. No thank you. I do not want to be around this. Instead, Satan shows up and he goes, hey Jesus, according to scripture, you can do anything you want. Turn these rocks into bread. Is he right? Yes. According to Scripture, Jesus can do whatever he wants. But what Jesus knows in that moment is, my father asked me to come to this desert to fast so I could be close to him, not to eat. There is a reason I'm doing this right now. And so what I tell you is, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And in that moment, what our Savior does is even though he himself speaks Scripture, what does he do? He references his father's word. And he's smart enough in that moment that even his Bible verses are being thrown at him. He goes, you're not using that the right way. You're going to try to use the Bible against me? Good luck. 
I am the Word, son. Let me show you how this works. Satan comes back to him and goes, the Bible says you can't be hurt. Throw yourself off the temple. All the people will see you be saved by angels. They'll worship and glorify you. And Jesus goes, and God, sa and God says, don't put him to the test unfairly. I'm not going to put him to the test today. You see this battle of Satan trying to twist and pervert the word, but Jesus going, I am the word. You're using it wrong. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to see in that is, if God Almighty's Son, Jesus Christ, who is without sin, who speaks Scripture Himself and is the Word, in His spiritual battles uses God's Word, that should be a sign to you and me we should be using it too. It should be a sign to you and me that we should know this Word, we should cherish this Word, and we should be ready to use it day in and day out. Brothers and sisters, there is not a problem with you being empowered or equipped. It's just a matter if you're going to use it. Do you handle your sword and your shield well? They take skill. They take skill. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward as we go into a time of prayer. I'm going to ask you to get real with God about how you've been doing on your training.